Does truth exist? Because you have faith, does that make this book true? Does God exist? So when someone says there is no truth, if you apply the claim to itself, what should you say? Is that true? They don't think Christianity is true. They're talked out of it. You know why they're talked out of it? Because they've never been talked into it. Cross-examining skeptical and atheistic views. Welcome to Cross-Examine with Dr. Frank Turek. Ladies and gentlemen, there are many popular philosophies and sayings that are floating around the internet that are supposed to be coming from Christians. Sayings like, live your truth, or you are enough, or you should put yourself first. Authenticity is everything, and God just wants you to be happy. And by the way, you shouldn't judge. I mean, these statements sound like we ought to agree with them. But should we? Is it possible that many of these statements, if not all of them, although they might sound good to modern ears, are actually deceptions? They are lies. They are pulling us away from the truth. Well, that actually is the thesis of my guest today, and you know her because she's, she's well, she was a recording star before she was ever an apologist with Zoe Girl. I'm talking, of course, about the great Elisa Childers, who just a couple of years ago wrote a book called Another Gospel because she almost became a progressive Christian and went right up to the cliff edge and then realized, no, this is not right. This is not true. This is not real Christianity. She then got into apologetics, attended our Cross-Examined Instructor Academy, and now she has a ministry at elisachilders.com. She also has a YouTube channel. She's on social media. She's speaking all over the country. And she's just written this brand new book called Live Your Truth and Other Lies. In fact, the subtitle is Exposing Popular Deceptions That Make Us Anxious, Exhausted, and Self-Obsessed. It's always great having Elisa on. Elisa, how are you? Hey, Frank. Great. Always great to be with you. Well, this book has been in the it's been in in the work for a couple of years now and I just got a copy just a few days ago. I'm almost through the entire thing. It is a very good read and it's hitting on these issues, Elisa, that are so prevalent in our culture today, so prevalent to the point that many Christians are agreeing with them. So let me just ask you right off the top, why did you decide to write this book now and what's the uh, what's the essence of the book? What are you trying to do? Well, I decided to write this book now because for a couple of years, I had been giving a talk. It was actually my most requested talk to give at women's conferences that was dealing with popular slogans, these kind of positive affirmation type sayings that it it sounds like the kind of thing you'd want to say to somebody who's having a hard day. It sounds positive. It sounds life affirming. But when you dig under the surface, you realize that it's they're actually not true. But even beyond that, you go deeper and you realize they actually lead to a lot of spiritual deception and spiritual rot. And they're actually place a great burden on people to say things like live your truth or you are enough uh, to, to them. So this was my most popular talk that I would give at women's conferences. And then I thought about expanding it out into a book and adding some more of these sort of slogan meme type of sayings that we all see on social media and applying them to both men and women. Because I think that there's not 
I, I don't think these lies are just lies that women are buying into. I think they might manifest differently, but there are things that kind of everybody just in our general culture are buying into. And then kind of just one other angle to the, to the book is there has been such a— uh, a flurry of extremely popular books written by, as you mentioned, self-professed Christians. They're more in the progressive Christian camp that are writing these kind of self-help books that have been extremely popular in culture, even uh, getting up to the number one on New York Times bestseller list that are promoting these sort of self-obsessed ideas, kind of worship yourself type ideas. And I've actually been on your podcast to talk about some of those, the books being written by Glennon Doyle and Jen Hatmaker and Rachel Hollis, these types of messages. So I wanted this book to be a, an apologetic response to a lot of the messages that are coming from those types of influencers and platforms, which is kind of hitting more on the influence influencer kind of pop level of progressive Christianity, not so much the theological and scholarly you know community of, of progressive Christians that might be saying more specific things about theology. This is kind of more on the pop level. Yeah, and it's written for just the average person like me and you, we can understand this material because you're writing it. First of all, you've got a lot of personal stories in the book, but secondly, you're pointing out the things that are so popular in our culture that sound so good, but if we're going to be discerning, we're gonna realize that these good sounding phrases like follow your heart or live your truth or you are enough or authenticity is everything, while they might have some truth in there, at the core of it, they're really anti-biblical. And if we go down those roads where we follow these truths to their conclusion, we're going to wind up, I think as your title says, you're going to wind up anxious, exhausted, and self-obsessed. So how did this book come about? What, what made you go, I really need to do this? I know you were doing the talk, but you really had to put this down in, 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 in writing. And uh, let, me, let me see, we've got how many chapters here, Lee? We've got 13 chapters and each chapter is covering one of these issues. So how did you, how did you come about to write this? Yeah, well, I just thought it was a really important time to write it because of the popularity of these other sort of self-help books that were covered in a bit of a Christian veneer using Christian language, uh, published even sometimes on Christian publishing houses by self-professed Christian authors, and yet these messages were so anti-biblical. Mm. And um, and so I, I was receiving a lot of emails from people who listened to my podcast and maybe read my blog saying, hey, can you respond to some of these messages? Because I know it's not—it it sounds— kind of nice, but I've got all these red flags, but I don't have language to articulate to my friends who are buying into all this, why it's wrong. And so I was just kind of hoping, also, you know, thinking back to um, what kicked off me even being able to write another gospel was a blog post I wrote where I reviewed Rachel Hollis's book, Girl, Wash Your Face, and it went viral. And that's really what provided the opportunity for me to even write the book, Another Gospel. So when it was time to write a second book, I just kind of thought back to that blog post and I thought, I think there's something there. There's an audience, obviously, for the type of thing I wrote in that blog post. Um, and so I, I just kind of wanted to address all of that in a, in a book-length treatment. Well, let's start with one of the chapters that deals with the title of the book, Live Your Truth. Why is living your truth not a good idea, Elisa? 
Well, it's it's not only not a good idea, it's actually not possible because your truth doesn't actually exist. As, and I'm, I'm laughing because this is like one of the, the bells you ring constantly. It's even in your opening. Is that true? You know, it's the nature of truth. And I think that has been a major issue where our culture and sadly our Christian culture has become extremely confused. And that's just the very definition of what truth is. You know, truth is what is real. It's a belief that lies up with reality. However, our culture has bought into the idea that truth is fluid. It's something that you create for yourself. You kind of, you know, do some introspection, do some some uh, some self-care, some self-love, figure out what you find inside of your heart, and then unleash that on the world and, and live your truth. Identify what's naturally inside of you and, and live your truth. And of course, we, we know this doesn't work because truth doesn't work that way. Um, truth, you know, I, I, in the book, I talk about, you know, what is the best dessert? What what do you think the best dessert is? What do I think the best dessert is? Well, there is no best dessert because that's just a, an opinion. That's a preference. There's nothing outside of us as a subject that we can test what is actually the best dessert. But if you test other claims that have to do with like who God is, who Jesus is, what is right and what is wrong, these are things that are rooted in objective reality that are not just a matter of opinion. And so where culture is telling you to live your truth, um, as you point out over and over on your podcast, well, what if my truth or my idea of what's right or wrong conflicts with someone else's idea of what's right or wrong? Then at that point, you just have whoever's the biggest and the strongest or has the most power or influence that gets to decide what's right or wrong for everyone else. And as we've seen all throughout history, the most powerful, the people who have the most influence are often in, you know, coding into law, very evil things. And we all know this innately, but I think it's just making the case for Christians to think these things through better that uh, will help us to realize that. And you'll think it through better if you get Elisa's new book, Live Your Truth and Other Lies. She's my guest today, Elisa Childers, elisachilders.com. elisachilders.com, check it out there. We're back in just two minutes with much more. Don't go anywhere. If you're low on the FM dial looking for national public radio, go no further. We're actually going to tell you the truth here. That's our intent anyway. You are never going to hear this on NPR. And what we're talking about? We're talking about Live Your Truth and Other Lies. That's the brand new book by my friend Elisa Childers, exposing popular deceptions that make us anxious, exhausted, and self-obsessed. Yeah, you would think that if you just lived your own truth, meaning you just did whatever you wanted to do, things would be a lot better for you. They might be over the short term, but over the long term, it is a disaster, ladies and gentlemen. You're going to wind up anxious, exhausted, self-obsessed, and probably alone if you just follow your heart all the time and do whatever you want to do. But, Elisa, before the break, we were talking about the chapter in the book, Live Your Truth. We were talking about the chapter that covers this topic, Live Your Truth. And in this chapter, you talk about something called linguistic theft. What is that about? Yeah, well, that actually came from the Mama Bear Apologetics book, and Hillary Ferrer mm -hmm. came up with this uh, term, linguistic theft. And basically what linguistic theft is something that we're seeing as a phenomenon in our culture where words are actually being retooled and redefined and repurposed and then used as tools of propaganda. That was uh, more or less Hillary's definition. And I added to that by saying, and it's not always intentional. It's not always meant to be propaganda. People just define words differently all the time. 
and we might end up totally talking past each other because we're defining words differently. And one of the big ones would be the word love. You know, if you think biblically about how the Bible talks about love, of course, it's one of God's attributes. So we start with his nature and character, but Paul fleshes this out for us in 1 Corinthians 13 when he says love is patient, love is kind. We all love that stuff, but then it goes on to say love cannot rejoice in wrongdoing, and it says love rejoices in the truth. So according to the Bible, according to the uh, accurate biblical definition of love, it's not loving to affirm something about someone else that's harmful or sinful, whereas culturally speaking, that word love has kind of been hijacked. It's been repurposed to mean an affirmation and even a celebration of whatever anybody else wants to live like or think like or behave like or say. And so you actually have these two radically opposite definitions of love operating, which can end up having us just talk past each other and uh, not understanding each other. Yeah, Satan comes as an angel of light, says Paul, and everybody's for love, right? Except when you redefine love to mean approval. If love means mm. approval, then you couldn't be a parent because you can't approve of everything your kid wants to do. If you if you did, you wouldn't be loving, you'd be unloving. And the same people that say, that, that say love means approval and you have to approve or as Lisa you just said celebrate what I do are the same people that don't celebrate what you do as a Christian <laughs> they think what you're doing is wrong right. and they don't need to approve of what you're doing or what you're saying now you point out also in the book that some of the uh some of the theological uh doctrine that is so central to Christianity is redefined how is the word resurrection redefined in in some progressive so-called Christian circles Right. Well, and this kind of relates with the topic of deconstruction. And of course, you know, Jacques Derrida, being a postmodern philosopher from the 60s, referred to as the father of deconstruction, didn't believe that words could be pinned down to singular meanings. And so, you know, the, the intent of the author had no more effect on the meaning than the interpretation of the hearer. And we, we see stuff like this happening all the time. And so in the modern deconstruction movement, which isn't always just about words, you know, there's, there's uh, a guy named John Caputo who applied Jock Derrida's ideas to religion and to Christianity to kind of bring that relativistic approach to truth to Christianity, which is very influential in the progressive Christian movement. So now you have words like resurrection being reinterpreted and essentially, you know, for, for many progressive Christians, certainly not all, uh, you can kind of create your own meaning for these words. So for many progressives, the resurrection just simply is, is a metaphor for seasons in our life where we have experienced some sort of loss or death or struggle, and then there's the rebirth. And so this would be referred to as resurrection, or maybe it's the, the metaphor of, of Jesus even in, in a spiritual sense, rising from the dead. And, you know, according to progressive Christianity, it doesn't really matter if Jesus' resurrection was literal or physical or an objective, you know, historical event that can be tested. That doesn't matter so much. What matters is more what we can learn about this theme of resurrection. So the word gets redefined to mean something really different than Christians have historically meant when we talk about the resurrection of Jesus. Friends, if you were being deceived, would you want to know it? I mean, that's the problem with deception, right? You don't know you're being deceived. If you did know, you wouldn't be deceived. And there are so many nice-sounding phrases, nice-sounding words, or as Elisa just said, redefined words that sound attractive and as Satan comes as an angel of light, are attractive if they're properly defined, but when they're improperly defined, they can lead us down the wrong road. 
So Elisa covers all this in the brand new book, Live Your Truth and Other Lies. It's a very easy read. The chapters are very, uh, very conversational. They're not very long, but you cover the issues that need to be covered for each of these topics. How about this idea of authenticity, Elisa? You have a mm. chapter in on authenticity. You just have to be authentic. What do you say about that? First, right. first of all, what is the teaching and then what's your response to it? Right. So this this was actually the hardest chapter for me to write, because if you think about the word authenticity, that's another word that has been kind of hijacked. It's been linguistically thefted, as we talk about in the first chapter. And so classically, you know, authenticity means being genuine. And I think there's a sense in which Christians can could be more authentic. I, I have friends who grew up in environments where their parents were, you know, cussing each other out in the car on the way to church, and then they get out of the car and it's like, hey, brother Bob, you know, everything's <laughs> wonderful. And so they're, you know, they're not being genuine about their struggles. And I think we need to be, as Christians, we need to be authentic with each other in the sense that it's okay to say, look, I'm struggling today. I don't want to be at church. Will you pray for me? I'm going to, I'm going to try to be obedient, but my, my attitude hasn't really caught up with that. So in that sense, I think it, it would be good for us to be authentic. But the problem is that that isn't what culture means when they say you should live your true authentic self. What culture is building that lie upon is basically the idea that truth is fluid and that humans are inherently good. And that we talk about that in the You Are Enough chapter. So if you approach humanity with the idea that humans are born either morally neutral or, or innocent or basically good, then you can understand why culture might tell somebody, well, all you need to do is just do some more, you know, soul searching or self-care or self-love, dig down deep inside of yourself to identify um, your truest, deepest desires. And so what culture will say about our desires is that your desires are always going to be right. So if you if you compare your desires with what people say you should and shouldn't do and there's a conflict, well, you should go with your desires because that's who you really are. Now, the problem with that is, of course, Christianity teaches the opposite. When our desires are in conflict with what's right or wrong, then Christianity teaches, actually, we need to repent. There's something about us innately that needs to change. We need to be reconciled to God. We need to be redeemed. We need to be saved. And so that is a concept that's really foreign to culture because culture really teaches that you are inherently good. Therefore, you just need to, to find out what the deepest part of you desires and wants and then live that truth out authentically. And that's what it means to live your true, authentic Self. But as we've observed, I've observed this in the lives of my friends who have family members who have decided to live this way. Living in that true, authentic self, according to culture, really has devastating consequences, not just for the person doing it, but for the people around them and what it demands of people around them. As we see even in our culture with trans ideology and rad radical gender theory demanding that people basically affirm things that aren't true about other people, which causes people to live by lies. And this is all based on this idea of living my true authentic self. Seems to me, as I was reading this, Elisa, it just struck me that if, if you are, or any of us are, if the individual is the source and measure of all truth, then you don't need God, right? I mean, you don't need the yeah. Bible. You are God. I mean, why do, ladies and gentlemen, why do we go to the Bible at all to learn what we already deep down in our hearts already know? That wouldn't make, if we already know it, why are we reading the Bible, <laughs> right? It seems like 
the only re- the only reason that we are um, lost is because we're sinners and we need a savior, and we're not going to find that savior in ourselves. In fact, you have another chapter in here, Lisa, that says the lie is you are enough. Why? Why is that a lie? You are enough. Yeah, that's sort of the big one. And I always try to give a little bit of a disclaimer because I know that that is such an ambiguous term. Like somebody mm-hmm. might genuinely just say if somebody has, you know, is feeling really down on themselves, they think they're ugly and worthless. And, you know, you want to say like, you're enough. And I get that. I totally get why that sounds like the right thing to say. But there's some problems with that statement and especially what culture means by that statement. So when, we, when you tell somebody you are enough, Essentially, what you're doing is you're putting an incredible burden on their shoulders. You're basically telling them that whatever problem you're having, whatever struggle you're experiencing, whatever angst you have inside of yourself, you have to solve that problem all by yourself because you're enough. Everything you need to solve that problem can be found inside of you. And what a burden that is because I think very often when we are down on ourselves, there could be actually a good reason for that. Maybe we've sinned against somebody else in our life and we're experiencing godly shame and guilt and conviction that would lead us to repent to that person and repent to the Lord and turn from that sin and invite the Holy Spirit to change us from the inside out. And even the idea that you are enough, not only does it go against the gospel, which says you need a savior outside of yourself, who's Jesus, but it also sends the message that um, that you've got to solve all your own problems. So in the book uh, by Ali Bestucky, great book called You're Not Enough and That's Okay, she says, and I quote her in this book, she says, the self can't both be the problem and the solution. And so we're burdening people by telling them that they actually can solve all their problems because ultimately I think we all know that we can't. But but even on a deeper level, um, there's such a better message than you're enough. Because Jesus actually is the one who's enough, and he's way better than any of us will ever be anyway. And so I kind of talk about Jesus' enoughness as the Bible talks about his righteousness. Of course, when we're in Christ, when we trust in Christ for our salvation, the Bible talks about his righteousness, that morally perfect life that he accomplished. That gets kind of put on us like a garment. It just covers us so that when God the Father looks at us, he doesn't see our sin, but he sees the righteousness that Jesus accomplished. And so in the book, I say it like this, you're not enough. But Jesus is enough. And when you're in Christ, his enoughness gets put on you so that when God looks at you, he sees the enoughness of Jesus. And that's really good news, Frank, but it's only going to be good news if you know that you need that, if you know that you're a sinner. In fact, I think that trying to convince people they actually need a Savior, that they are sinners, is possibly the most difficult task in evangelism for Christians right now because culture is telling them, you're perfect just as you are. Let's talk more about that right after the break. You're listening to I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist with me, Frank Turek, on the American Family Radio Network, my guest, Elisa Childers, the brand new book, Live Your Truth and Other Lies, ladies and gentlemen. Much more after the break, so don't go anywhere back in two. Ladies and gentlemen, if you want to know why the New Testament scriptures are historically reliable, you need to take that course with Dr. Craig Blomberg. It's coming up right about now. The course is starting. If you're hearing this after, say, uh, 
late October. You can probably still sign up. Just go to crossexamine.org and click on online courses. You'll see it there. Dr. Craig Blomberg is one of the top New Testament scholars in the world, and he will be teaching an online course with us here. And if you sign up for the premium version, you are going to be on several live Zoom sessions with Dr. Blomberg and uh, his co-teacher, Michael Patton, and you will get the best evidence there is out there that, sh- that shows you that the New Testament is actually telling us the truth, that it's historically re- reliable. also want to mention, I'm going to be in Orlando, Florida on the 22nd and 23rd of October, Faith Assembly Church, details on the website. Then on the 24th, we're continuing our taping of the uh, book of Galatians. We're going through the book of Galatians verse by verse, and for our NRB TV show, we'll be taping that. You can watch that live on our YouTube channel, 7.30 p.m., October 24th, but it will not be archived. If you want to see it later, you got to join our cross-examined community. Go to the website for more on the cross-examined community. Then, October 26th, Wingate University, not far from Charlotte, North Carolina, will be doing I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist. All the details are on our website, crossexamined.org. Let me go back now to my friend Elisa Childers. Her brand new great book, Live Your Truth and Other Lies, Exposing Popular Deceptions That Make Us Anxious, Exhausted, and Self-Obsessed. And we were talking a little bit about You Are Enough and authenticity and some other some, some other of these uh, philosophies that are thrown out online. And uh, Elisa, you write in this book, a little bit about Glennon Doyle and the inner cheetah, the inner cheetah. Can you explain yeah. what that is? Right. So Glennon Doyle's book, Untamed, was one of the most popular books of a couple years ago. This was number one New York Times bestseller. She had celebrities like Reese Witherspoon, Adele, and others just singing the praises of this book, Untamed. In fact, I believe the singer Adele said that the book made her fly back into her body for the first time. I mean, this was a book that was so well-received by culture. And in the book, she begins with this analogy of going to a, a zoo where she saw this kind of caged cheetah. And what they would do is they'd put some meat or something on the back of a jeep, and they would have the cheetah chase the jeep um, for this, you know, the steak, the store-bought steak. And so then after they watched the show, the cheetah goes back into the the sort of protected area and she sees these moments of wildness come out in the cheetah where maybe the cheetah realizes they're caged. Like they were, they were fine. The cheetah was fine to chase the store-bought steak, but then, you know, the cheetah ultimately realizes they're in the wrong place. Like they belong in the wild. They should be out in the wild. And so she's kind of comparing this cheetah analogy to, I believe she's trying to apply it really to most women. And and in her sort of um, thesis of her book is that basically most women are living in these like caged cheetahs. Like we're happy with the store-bought steak. We're happy chasing the Jeep, but ultimately we belong in the wild. And so whatever situations we find ourselves in as women, whether it's an unhappy marriage or maybe it's, you know, a job where we're not achieving the the dreams we've always had for ourselves, you know, the answer is to get out of those situations, to free yourself, to go back into the wild essentially and and really find your inner cheetah. And this is really unleashed uh, just, just a ton, almost a movement, I would say, uh, of people who have read this book and then made major life decisions based on trying to find this inner cheetah. Frank, just in my own personal life, one of my uh, one of 
my friends, uh, her husband read this book, Untamed, and essentially ended up leaving the family, live, you know, going out to live his truth. And now he's talking about how oppressive Christianity is and has left his wife and kids just in, in this um, utter turmoil. I, I was at another conference where a man approached me and said his wife had read Untamed and basically had decided that she wanted to go live her truth. And they'd only been married a year. She divorced him. And the guy was just wrecked. You know, he just he just couldn't figure out what had happened. And so this this book is very influential, which is why we address it several times uh, in the book. And this is what Glennon Doyle herself did, right? Didn't she leave her husband for another woman? And of course, yeah, that would be devastating to children. But she tried to spin it and say that her children would appreciate the fact that she was following her heart, so to speak, following, releasing her inner cheetah to do what her heart really wanted to do. So how would you respond to that? How do you respond to it in the book, yeah, Live I, Your Truth and Other Lies? Yeah, the, so her entire book of Untamed essentially is the story of her meeting women's soccer star, Abby Wambach, and deciding to leave her husband and go ahead and marry Abby. And so when in the book, when she describes the the moment she realized that she was going to go ahead and pull the trigger and leave her husband and marry Abby was when uh, she was reading Swiss psychiatrist uh, Carl Jung. And, he, and I have to paraphrase the quote because I don't have it in front of me, but he said something like, you know, there's nothing worse you can do as a mother than basically lead, lead by example of a life unfulfilled. Are you not fulfilling your dreams or putting yourself first or, or something along those lines? And that was really what caused her to pull the trigger and leave her husband and marry uh, marry Abby. Wait, and you're right, Frank, the so, way that the... No, let me, let me just ask this question then. So Glennon Doyle at least thought she was a Christian, claimed to be a Christian, and so she's taking marching orders from Carl Jung rather than the Bible. Basically, well, she's taking marching orders. I, I can tell you exactly who she's taking marching orders mm -hmm. from. In fact, she describes calling it the her inner knowing, and she spells knowing with a capital K. And so what she says is she got in her closet, she meditated for several minutes a day until she found what she called liquid gold inside of herself, and she named it the knowing. And I don't think it's by coincidence that she put a capital K on that. And she regularly throughout the book conflates the self with God, um, really, I think, leading people to ultimately use their own hearts as their inner guides and worship themselves. So when she's quoting Carl Jung, I think she's basically saying whatever he said lined up with what her inner knowing just sort of innately knew to be true. And so she was following her heart. And, and I think the danger of this, Frank, and, and I see this so often with influencers like her, she represents many others that have platforms like hers, where they, they are in major life transitions. They've just basically changed their entire worldview, changed their entire circumstance. And they're asking all of their followers to come with them on their journey and basically do the same thing when nobody's even given this a few years to see how it all pans out and works out. And, you know, there's nothing wrong with following somebody who's going through a rough time if they're pointing you to eternal truths, time-tested truths like the Bible and what the Word of God might say about something and then living as an example of somebody who's living in obedience to that. But we have all these influencers who are getting divorced. They're, they're you know, leaving their spouses for other people. They're uh, in the midst of major life changes, but at the same time, they're telling their audience, hey, you need to be doing this too because it's great. But 
I don't think we know whether or not it's great yet. I mean, obviously we know because we have the Bible, but just from a, a natural standpoint, like this hasn't even had a chance to work itself out for a few years and see if it's even going to work out for them. Reminds me of what our mutual friend John Cooper said after another one of the so-called uh, worship leaders decided he wasn't a Christian anymore. I can't remember who it was, but he said, you've been living this way for years and 10 minutes ago you changed your worldview and now you, you're recommending everybody change their worldview too. How about a little humility? How about first saying, right. hang on, man, I got it wrong. At least I think I got it wrong for 35 years. And now here in my 35th year, I've changed my worldview completely and everybody needs to agree with me. That sounds a lot like people trying to look for um, look for validation, right? They, they know in their hearts what they're doing is against, against the, the word of God. They know in their hearts what they're doing is against really what they ought to be doing. So in order to feel better, they got to get everybody on board and say, yeah, yeah, you got to agree with me. This is a great thing. When you point out in the book, again, the book is called, ladies and gentlemen, Live Your Truth and Other Lies, Elisa Childers. You point out in the book, Elisa, that Jesus's message is exactly opposite to this idea of, I'm the boss, I get to do what I want, I got to follow my heart. Jesus's message was opposite that. What was his message? Right. Well, it, I always read this to audiences when I'm speaking at conferences where Jesus said, if anyone wishes to come after me, let him find his true authentic. Oh, wait, no, that's not it. <laughs> Jesus didn't say that. He said, if anyone wishes to follow after me, let him deny himself daily, pick up his cross and follow me. And what I love to point out in the book, especially, is that, you know, as Christians today, when we say pick up our cross, I think often we look back on the cross from our perspective and see the cross as a victorious symbol, which it is. I mean, it's the victory, right, that Jesus accomplished on the cross. But we have to remember that when Jesus said those words, he had not been crucified yet. Mm -hmm. And so he was speaking those words into a context. In the Roman Empire, These the people he was speaking to would have been accustomed to seeing people hanging on crosses. This is one of the ways that the Romans kept people uh, under submission and under control was the, the fear and the threat of crucifixion, which was reserved for the lowest of the low, was reserved for traitors and slaves. And, and this was not only the most excruciating way to die, but it was also the most humiliating way to die. And so I think even as modern day Christians, we need to kind of think a little bit more like that and realize that when Jesus says, pick up your cross, he's not just saying you need to be willing to die, but almost in a way, he's saying you need to be willing to live in a way that might cause you shame in the eyes of your culture, that might be taboo, that might be something that's humiliating on a natural level, because following Christ is often going to be in conflict with the, the ethics of our culture, the ideas of our culture, um, the, the norms of our culture. And so uh, Jesus' call is not to find yourself, not to live your truth, but it's to actually deny yourself. And, and pick up your cross and follow him. But the good news is that when we do that, he gives us something in its place. It's not just like he's asking us to become, you know, living martyrs, and although in some ways we are, he gives us something to put in its place. And that is a deep abiding joy and the ultimate fulfillment of our purpose, which is to be in relationship with God and worship him forever. And the only way to do that is to do it his way. And I, I just, I love what the gospel has to offer us because if we're truly honest about ourselves and we look inside our and we know that we're sinners, that we need redemption, we need salvation, 
when we get that from Jesus, I love the way the Bible talks about it. We don't just get saved. We get adopted into an entirely new family. We're citizens of an entirely different kingdom. And our king is the creator of the universe. And and this is our purpose. And it's such a beautiful truth if you know that you need it. Yeah, if you really want to know what your true identity is, don't go anywhere. We're going to talk about it right after the break. It's contained not only in the Bible, but in the brand new book by Elisa Childers, Live Your Truth and Other Lies. You need to get a copy. I'm Frank Turk. We're back in two minutes. More with Elisa. Don't go anywhere. Ladies and gentlemen, in addition to the online courses we're offering here at crossexamine.org and onlinechristiancourses.com, you can actually get a degree in apologetics. You can get it from Southern Evangelical Seminary. That's where I went. That's where Lisa Childers is now going. She's my guest today. SES.edu. Check it out. SES.edu. A amazing place to learn apologetics, philosophy, and theology, and it's all done online. So check it out, ses.edu. You know, before the break, Elisa, we were talking about how Jesus asks us to deny ourselves, to pick up our cross and carry it, and he says things like, if you don't hate your parents in relation to me, you're not worthy of me. He says, if you just think about uh, some uh, lustful things you're guilty out of it. You just think about it. I mean, he really put a really high bar out there that hardly anybody would want in their human nature to follow. I'm just wondering how this human being, Jesus, with these kind of teachings could be and, well, actually is the most influential human being in the world if he didn't rise from the dead. I mean, why, why would anyone want to do this, right? Why, right. Why would, why would anybody want to want to carry your cross? Why would anyone want to deny yourself? Why would anybody want to do these things? He must have really rose from the dead. And you you cover some of the evidence for that in the, in the new book, uh, Live Your Truth and Other Lies. In fact, you talk about the minimal facts. Why don't you just give us the few minimal facts and then we'll move on. Yeah, well, I wanted to put that in there because I think a lot of Christians are unaware that there's actual evidence even outside of the Bible that mm-hmm. demonstrates the reliability of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In fact, even if you never had a Bible, I'm not saying you could prove the resurrection, but you could reasonably conclude just from the non-Christian historical sources all within about 200 years of Jesus' life that he lived, that he was known to be uh, sinless and virtuous, that he was crucified under Pontius Pilate, and that his closest followers believed they had seen him alive after he was dead and testified to that fact even under threat of death and being tortured. So the minimal facts are really our our friend uh, Dr. Gary Habermas got together uh, just, I think it was like 2,000 of the most, or I'm not sure exactly how many it was, but of the most critical scholarly uh, sources about the resurrection of Jesus and tried to figure out what all the scholars basically agreed on, from the most skeptical to the most conservative. And there are different uh, points that they all agree on. So to just summarize a few of them, uh, they virtually every scholar agrees that Jesus Christ was a, a historical person, that he was crucified under Pontius Pilate that uh, his closest followers believed they'd seen him alive after he was dead, that they were willing to be tortured and even go to their deaths, maintaining that testimony to be true. Uh, Virtually all scholars agree that Paul, who was the persecutor, was instantly changed after his testimony of having seen the risen Jesus. And then, of course, the the, the skeptic James, Jesus' brother, who was, you know, we have in the New Testament him being described as somebody who thought Jesus was crazy. And then after he has this encounter, 
encounter with uh, what he testified was the risen Jesus, his brother. He becomes the leader of the church. So, so there's these certain historical facts that everybody has to wrestle with and kind of come to a cl- conclusion of what do you think happened if he wasn't raised from the dead? What's a better way to explain that? And I honestly can't think of one. I think the best explanation of the evidence is that Jesus truly was raised from the dead. That's why very few atheist scholars or non-believers will take a position. They will not take a naturalistic uh, explanation because they know the natural exp- naturalistic explanations they come up with have huge holes in them. So the question, as you point out in the book, Live Your Truth and Other Lies, Elisa, is, is not what the evidence says. The, the question is, how do you interpret the evidence? And I think many people will rule out a resurrection at the get-go. So they say, it can't mm-hmm. be a resurrection, but we don't know what happened. When, of course, we realize that since God created the universe, that the universe had a beginning, and if he can create the universe out of nothing, he can certainly resurrect somebody from the dead. The greatest miracle in the Bible is the first verse. If that verse is true, every other verse is possible, including the resurrection. In any event, I want to touch on uh, identity for just a minute, at least, and then move on to our final uh, point here. And that is, you were just talking before the break about how Christians or how anyone really can get an identity that's eternal and secure. How do we do that? Well, identity is determined by the person who creates something, right? The purpose for something. So, um, and and who gets to decide that but God, who is our creator. He created human beings for a very specific purpose, and our identity is going to be rooted in the thing we were created for, our purpose. And our purpose is to worship God and to be in his presence forever, to be in relationship with him forever. We were created literally in his image, which is such an amazing doctrine, which is unique from all other religions, if you really think about it. The fact that, that the Bible teaches we were created in the image of God, which means we can reason, we can love, we have choices. There, there are so many things about that that are so beautiful. But what a lot of these messages skip over is the, is the Genesis 3 part of that equation, right? As Christians, we, we we know that we were created in the image of God, that what God created was good, but then that good or that image became distorted by sin. So the Bible talks about in Romans 5, through one man, sin entered the world, and, and through him, death spread to all men. So we all are born with this proclivity towards sin, this sin nature that needs to be sort of recalibrated, redeemed, um, restored unto God, and reconciled to God. And that's when we start truly living in our identity that God created us to be, which is in relationship with him. So anything we try outside of that to try to fix whatever problem we might be experiencing, it's just going to be like a Band-Aid or it's going to be like, Mm. you know, and we see this everywhere, people, you know, turning to drugs and alcohol or entertainment or self-obsession or whatever it might be to try to fill that hole or to fix what's broken. Or another person, I want to leave my husband for another woman. That's right. Exactly. Changing whatever your circumstances are. But ultimately, that's just going to lead to more destruction. And so so really living in our true identity, which is child of God. That's what I am, is a child of God. When I'm in Christ, like I said before, I've been adopted into a new family. God is my father. and, And I have this whole new identity. And that's really the beauty of the message that I think Christians need to be proclaiming more, is is letting people see the beauty of the gospel lived out in our lives. Read John chapter 1, verse 12. He's given you the right to become a child of God, to become an heir to the throne, if you will. You can't lose that. 
You can lose a number of things in this life. The only thing you can't lose is Jesus. That's your identity. Anyway, I want to spend our last few minutes, Elisa. Uh, you talk about this at the end of the book. Again, ladies and gentlemen, the book is called Live Your Truth and Other Lies, Exposing Popular Deceptions That Make Us Anxious, Exhausted, and Self-Obsessed by Elisa Childress. By the way, the award-winning author of Another Gospel. You talk about an experience you had when you visited a prison in South America. Tell us about that. Yeah, well, I was on a mission trip, and I had the really rare opportunity of visiting a women's prison. And typically, they did not allow groups in. They especially didn't allow groups from America. But because there was a local missionary who had made relationships inside of the prison, they allowed about five of us to go into this prison. And it was a a really life-changing experience for me for many reasons. Number one, I learned that prisons in other countries are not like prisons in America. The women in this prison, you basically get locked inside if you're in prison. And you don't necessarily get a fair trial. There were women inside who had been framed by, you know, coming coming for a weekend and having a fling with somebody who packed their uh, suitcase with drugs, like something you'd see in the movies. And then they're in this prison without a fair trial. You just get locked inside. You don't get food. You don't get um, access to a mattress or a bed or a private place. You have to pay for all that stuff. So a lot of women would prostitute themselves on visitor's day to be able to just have basic necessities like food. And so we walked past a, a bunch of women. The missionary walked us into a room where there was this group of women that were so filled with joy and they had this peace about them. And I said, who are these women? And the missionary said, these are the Christians. And so what the missionary did was she would try to lead some of the women to the Lord. She'd witness to everybody. And the ones who received the Lord, she worked with them, helped them uh, make greeting cards so that they wouldn't have to resort to other means of, of you know making money. But it was just so stunning to me to see that in this terrible place where the women were, many were in there unjustly, they had joy. They had peace. They had a greater joy and a peace than I think I've ever possibly known. And that really spoke to me that the truth of the gospel, the beauty of the gospel is that no matter what your circumstances are, no matter what your financial situation, your marital status, whatever uh, you know your sexual proclivities are, whatever your situation, the gospel is enough. And no matter where you are, you can have that deep abiding joy. And it's kind of like, you know, I think a lot of Christians, when we hear these lies, they think, well, what should I do? And I think what we should do is what Paul did. Paul said, we spread the fragrance of the knowledge of Christ. And he said, to those who are perishing, it smells like death, but to those who are being saved, it smells like life. And so our job as Christians is to spread that fragrance. The gospel has a smell, right? We we speak the truth of who God is. And, and some people, it's going to stink. We're going to stink to them. But to people who are open, to people who the Holy Spirit is working on their heart, this is going to smell like life and hope and peace. And I think that here in America, we've lived with a certain sense of comfort being able to express our ideas, maybe until you know recently. And, and now we're experiencing maybe just a small taste of what most Christians have experienced all throughout history. And that's great opposition to what we believe. And so I think it's time for us to kind of get a backbone and start spreading that fragrance, knowing that there are going to be people out there to to that we really stink to but god will draw the ones who are open and who he's working on and that's the beauty of it is that's our job is just to spread the fragrance and you can learn a lot more in the brand new book by elisa called live your truth and other lies exposing popular deceptions that make us anxious anxious exhausted and self-obsessed elisa where can people follow you and get more information about you and your ministry 
Well, you can go to elisachilders.com. Of course, I'm on YouTube. Just search my name, Elisa Childers, and there's the Elisa Childers podcast if you prefer the audio platforms. But I did want to let your audience know, Frank, that we did have a pre-order bonus where if people pre-ordered the book before it came out, they got access to these exclusive uh, five videos where I talk through the book. I give a little additional information, what I was thinking when I wrote each chapter. But what we're going to do for your audience is if they put the word Frank into the uh, uh, there's a form right on the homepage of my website where they can fill out the form. And if you put the word Frank into that form, you will also get access to the pre-order bonuses, which have now expired because the book's out. So you'll get a little extra something for your, I don't have enough faith to be an atheist audience there, Frank. You see how amazing it is to listen to this pod- podcast, ladies and gentlemen, you get special deals like this from elisachilders.com. Go there and, and put that in there. Get the book, Live Your Truth and Other Lies. Put Frank in the little box there, and you'll get those five videos for free. It's great having Elisa on. Check out her website. Check out the book, and I'll see you here next week, Lord willing. God bless.